AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us together, we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing season one, episode six. This episode is titled Babylon and it was written by Andrew Jacques Melton and Maria Jacques Melton. And it is directed by Andre Bernstein. The episode originally aired on August 23rd, 2007. The hit movies at the box office will look quite similar to last week. Superbad remained number one at the box office, followed by The Born Ultimatum and Rush Hour 3. New films that opened that week outside of that top three were Mr. Bean's Holiday, War with Jet Li and Jason Statham, and The Nanny Diaries with Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans, which predates their turn in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which does not exist yet, and is definitely a movie I heard about when I made the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> the hit song that they week... All... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, they also did the perfect score together, Matt. Excuse you. Okay, that <laughs> it... is a film. Excuse me, indeed. The hit song that week was still Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston. And Annie, just to go a little off script for a second there, have you listened to it again yet? Oh, yeah, no. No, no, no. <laughs> every time, Every time we finish talking about it, I forget about it completely. <laughs> well, it's running through my head now if you'd like me to sing it for you. <laughs> I'm okay without it. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your generous author. All right, in this episode of Babylon, after Don takes a trip on Mother's Day, he receives a lesson in etymology and gets into the scene at the Gaslight Cafe. Roger has something for Joan, and Peggy has an idea. I rather like this episode, guys. I liked it, too. I like, yes. I had a feeling that these episodes would continue to get better, and I think so far they have been. So I meant to actually ask you last week, Melissa, um, as someone who sort of kind of got her arm twisted into watching a show that you'd heard about and had never seen. At this point in season one, how are you feeling about the watch? How are you feeling? Like, would you, is this something that you would continue watching if you weren't obligated to us? Yeah, I definitely think it is. Um, I would go as far as to say if we weren't doing this we'll say weekly, that I would maybe binge this a little more, especially after the Don Dick Whitman stuff, because <laughs> that is just, that's so different from what I thought this show would be, that it really piqued my interest, so I'm definitely ready to go forward. That is really awesome to hear. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I guess then Annie, in the, in the same... Or same vein or something similar as someone who's seen the show before and now watching it again for for this project because of your commitment to your 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 fellow podcasters um how are you feeling about your rewatch uh you know what about the same it's so much is happening i mean when you you think about mad men long after it's been over I have, or at least you, I, I have this memory of it being very like cerebral, very thoughtful, slower paced, character uh, drama and evolution, which it is. But I did forget that everything was so well placed or well paced and how things came in and how interesting it really is and how much there is to unpack. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I know that's like a total hot take that this is a good show. <laughs> 
but I, I have apparently the, the short-term memory of a goldfish and have forgotten so much of this that it's like exploring uh, everything like it's brand new again and it's been pretty good. What about you, Matt? I know you started it later than I did. Yeah. And I know you remember more of it than I do. How are you feeling? Also hot take, it is a good show. But like going back to kind of what we, or at least I think we talked about, I haven't listened to it in a while, um, in our kind of introductory episode and what I thought the show was about, I still think in a lot of ways is what the show is about. But looking at like the last three-ish episodes specifically, I'm, I'm like, not to hopefully tip my hand too much in the terms of future knowledge, I've been thinking about how we watched New Amsterdam. We empathized with Pete. And then the next week, and last week, so last week in 5G, you know, he's back to being the Pete we don't like and coercive and everything else. Thinking back again to 5G last week and what we're, what we're talking about and, you know, getting into it and unpacking Dawn slash Dick and, you know, talking about, you know, hero worship and, you know, whether you feel like you're, you're worthy of, of your family's love and things like that. Definitely like empathizing with, with Dawn and connecting. But then again, this week, I'm kind of out on him again. So that, that oscillation and back and forth, I think is interesting. But then again, looking at it through kind of that, that modern lens, I'm wondering, I'm going to back that up. It's interesting that oscillation between the, this person is kind of crappy. Oh, I feel for them. And they go back to being crappy. But because we have that, that window into what we were talking about last week, their, their private or their interior life, what are we willing to desensitize ourselves to or be okay with the next week when they kind of get back to their, their public personas, which is something I don't know if I was totally like, aware of the the first time so it's kind of been interesting to go go through and still like very much enjoy this and wanting to to binge ahead every week after we record i i can't wait to watch um next week's episode but it's it's just been it's been interesting it's been good i've been i've been enjoying watching it and enjoying talking to both of you even more so thank you Hmm. no that's an interesting um idea that you're bringing up that there's some desensitization there's some sympathy in how we perceive these characters that do things that are sort of deplorable and um you know we're going through a lost rewatch too along with the storm podcast there's so much that we were just okay with or didn't pay attention to or just accepted uh you know 12 15 years ago and now it's really hard to ignore certain behaviors even though i know it's set in the 60s and mm-hmm. it was recorded in 2007 it is it's it's been so interesting seeing how differently we experience this this viewing one such example betty someone i really didn't have a lot of time for the first time this went around yeah and i think that's been one of the most betty's been one of the most interesting things for me because I, i've i've talked about before about viewing her as kind of a like very much a a daisy buchanan character just you know as as from the, the great gatsby and kind of that whole kind of pure white linen imagery and I, I still think some of that is there but my my read of her at the time was more vapid than anything else and i don't mm-hmm. i don't think that's entirely true and i think what we see with her kind of she doesn't have a lot to do in this episode, but her conversation with, with Dawn, with it being, you know, Mother's Day and, and brings everything up. Um, 
she makes text what we we read as subtext last week about feeling like Don's absent and wanting him to be there and everything else. And that's that has a level of emotional intelligence that I don't know if I necessarily saw the first time for for a myriad of reasons. No, definitely the same, because I think they have laid the groundwork in the past couple episodes leading up to right now. All the little ways that she's just asking for whatever it is that she needs and still maintaining that perfect pristine like you said daisy buchanan-esque kind of uh exterior and i think it was really easy as you know how old was i i was 20 21 years old when the show first aired to buy into that part the the veneer that she wanted us to see and i don't think we were terribly kind to her as a young beautiful woman or january jones who is often written off as a young beautiful woman herself i wish i could go back in time and see what it would be like for me meeting betty and watching these episodes for the first time when i was so young Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not when this first aired because I was extremely young, but like college age, I think would be interesting. Um, just so I could have some idea of how my thinking has changed, and it's disappointing. But I wasn't really critically thinking about any media at that time, so I don't even know. I don't have anything to compare it to either. It's like I wasn't thinking about it at all, and I wasn't paying attention. And then all of a sudden, I'm doing this. (laughs) (laughs) So as your first impression of Betty, you've been finding her to be a particularly um, sympathetic character or someone who's at all, you know, reasonably fleshed out for being six episodes in and not having as much screen time as the others. Yeah, I, I love Betty. And I said this when we first met her, too, that I feel like she right off the bat is one of the most fully formed characters we knew right away even spending less time with her we knew right away what her motivations are that she has this trauma of losing her mom um that she has this anxiety that you know may or may not be stemming from that and is probably you know exacerbated by that and she has this marriage to a man that she doesn't quite understand but we can tell that she she truly loves him and she really wants him and that comes out explicitly in this episode and also breaks my fucking heart yeah oh betty um, so I've said this, I think like two or in the past, like two or three episodes before we open to them having, well, we open to Don one, like splashing around some frozen orange juice concentrate and stuff and trying real hard as that much as Don disgusting. tries. <laughs> I thought it was egg yolks at first. Me too. Making like a hangover kind of thing. But no, he was being like, good dad. He was doing a really sweet thing, looking very nice in his pajamas and undone hair, doing the Mother's Day thing, trips and falls, and flashes back to a very different kind of Mother's Day, where um, uh, he meets his little brother, Adam, for the first time, whom we met last week. Also, still still a baby face. But, that um, baby is kind of gray. I was know, a little concerned about it. In fairness, that's not completely inaccurate for a brand new baby. I know. Did she have the baby? She had the baby in the house, right? Yeah. I. Okay. 
but it, you know, to see like that fresh of a baby looking so great in the house, it just gave me like the feeling <laughs> that like something is wrong. Fresh babies are super gross. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Um, and then I did notice that his, well, not his mother, says, we're going to name him Adam for the first man. And Dick Whitman's like, I mean, okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> no wonder he's like, yeah, he's not my brother. Yeah, and no wonder he just has... I mean, I guess I don't know if it's, like, a complex, but just, like, no wonder Don just wants to be in control and wants to be on top and wants just things how they are supposed to be, however he decided that they're supposed to be. Because the very first time he met his brother, his mom was like, yeah, no, this is <laughs> shit and you are not. <laughs> yeah, so somehow, for poor Betty, her Mother's Day is also kind of about Don. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's super awesome. Um, but it looks like they actually had a nice time. Red balloons are forever ruined for me, thanks to it. I, I, I had that, that same thing. <laughs> it's like an innocence thing, right? It's childlike. It's innocence. We get it. You'll float too. But um, <laughs> I mean, and that is kind of what what they all seem to be doing. They're all kind of floating around and and uh. Like I said, I've mentioned it before. It's nice when Betty and Don just get to show us what they are like together. And it's it's nice and enjoyable. And it doesn't necessarily feel... I mean, it doesn't feel um, encumbered by the weight of everything and all, the facade that they play. Even if all this is maybe kind of not real, it feels real in that moment. And, and it was lovely. But then this poor woman is telling her husband how much she is constantly thinking about how she wants him and just everything like her body is aching for him and, and and you know you get the sense it's not just the physical stuff she doesn't have all of him she tells him he wants him and he tells her that she has him and it's a lie it's a lie <laughs> it's a filthy lie it's a lie and i i mean we'll talk about this later but this scene just makes everything else that Don does in this episode just more egregious and just hurts me more because of this. And it it's just, we don't often get to see so plainly a woman on TV, especially in this time period, being... I mean, not explicitly, but basically explicitly sexual. And mm -hmm. I know that we all realize that she's not just talking about the sex, but the fact that she is in that moment, like, that's what she's using to bring up a more serious conversation with her husband. And, like, mm -hmm. good for you, Betty. You tell mm -hmm. that man what you need and what you want, and then I'm going to fume behind my TV screen <laughs> as I watch the rest of this episode. It's definitely a language that she understands more and understands her own power in it i think and i mean it's not wrong to think that that's a language that don tends to express himself in as well no and this is probably a cynical reading but don doesn't spend a lot of time at home so this is probably the language that they've cultivated together in their relationship as well mm -hmm. like there's not a lot of time for them 
I think, to have emotionally charged conversations just because they don't seem to spend a whole lot of time together. No, most of um, Betty Betty's introspective conversations happen with Dr. Wayne, who Don just gives this kind of eye roll about when he mentions her, or when she mentions him. Not a fan of that. Yeah, that's really unfair, sir. Like, for one, she is telling you that it's helping her. Even if you don't believe in therapy, which is unhelpful and reductive, your wife, who you empowered to make the choice to go to therapy, is telling you that therapy is helping you. What purpose is it serving for you to belittle it? I mean, it doesn't help that he's also, like, listening in on those conversations, essentially. In terms of Don's lie about being present in his marriage and, and in belittling Betty, they, they're having a, that talk where she's trying to have that emotional connection with him. And she's it's it's Mother's Day. She's she's reflecting on, you know, her own relationship with her kids and then her relationship with her her recently departed mother. And you have in the, the comments, Melissa, so I'm curious to hear your, or in the notes, I should say, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it, about one of the other main moments in the episode, and Betty's not in the episode that much. In fact, like, this initial scene at the beginning was almost cut when they were writing the episode, and I'm so thankful that they left it in, because I think that its presence is felt throughout the rest of the episode. But Don belittles what Betty is sharing with him. On, on Mother's Day when they're having that, that conversation in, in the bedroom about her mourning her mother and it being just extended self-pity. And Melissa, you've highlighted that in the notes, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That line really stuck out to me for one because I feel like it's a cruel thing to say. And also, after our conversation last week, we had talked about the fact that um, Don considers his former self dick whitman to be dead and we talked about the fact that you know his brother adam hadn't had the opportunity to mourn him or i guess is gonna need to mourn him again now that he returned and sent him away um but i think it's fair to say that don himself has some hang-ups in that same regard and so to call mourning extended self-pity is both cruel to your wife and detrimental to his own well-being i think because he probably needs to spend some time thinking about his former self obviously because he's still shook over seeing adam and he's still thinking about his past life as dick whitman and you know his brother is gone now he did that himself but effectively he needs to mourn the brother that he had or he could have had um which i think is dredging up a bunch of stuff and it it wouldn't be self-pity for him to think about that and figure out how to move forward from that in a real way i don't want to pile on to don for being so dismissive of of betty's feelings because i mean we with what we learned from Adam and the the small bit that we saw at the beginning of the episode, he's not exactly raised in an open environment that cultivated Mm -hmm. his own emotional intelligence. So to pass it on down to Betty, and then you've got Betty who has given hints of her own relationship with her mother, which sounds complicated at best. Um, and, and we get hints of it in how she passes it on to Sally 
it's not excusing any of it at all. It just makes it clear where it's coming from and seeing where like the lack of self-awareness is is just allowing them to continue this pattern. I'm just mad at Don. I don't want to keep talking about it. <laughs> so I'm like trying to think of nicer things to say. And obviously, I mean, we're trying to talk about Betty, but so much of this Betty stuff centers around my anger at Don. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of a lot of Betty's existence re- revolves around Don as well. You know, she was trained to be beautiful. It was the beauty was used to trap a man um and then she got it and then now what you know this is what she is dealing with it's like she got everything she was supposed to do she achieved it how she was supposed to achieve it her like one moment of rebellion seems to have been like necking with a jewish boy once upon a time ago on her like unofficial field trip to a synagogue so like I don't know what what else that she's not getting fulfillment from from this like one major part of her life that her life was meant to be founded on. I, I just generally constantly feel for Betty nowadays. Yeah, and it's just so unfair that this is what was expected of her, but supporting that existence is not what's expected of Don. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we. It's nice to think that this is something that was left behind the '60s or even in in the 2000s. But you know, I met probably should tell the story. I met someone who is beautiful, young woman, not unbetty like, who very smart and had potential to be someone really good, and whose father told her you should become a nurse so you could marry a doctor. Oh. And yeah, no, if you and honestly, I. I constantly have to revisit that to remind me why I can't sympathize for various insecurities that manifest themselves in really unpleasant ways. And that's just kind of like what I get from Betty. She wasn't meant to be more than a human. She was meant to be a prize. And, but she can't, she's, I don't know. I don't know. She's just incapable of being, of being less than what she is. And then to add insult to injury later in the episode, she tries to be intimate with him again, and he's like, well, it's hot, and she says, we should get an air conditioner, and she's just, like, this sweet girl who's just trying to solve these superficial problems that Don is acting like he has, and she's never even given the opportunity to actually know what problems Don has. Oh, yeah, and in that moment, was it she was sitting on the bed, and her... her underwear her hair was like slightly undone the lamplight was going she had this like smile on her face she was so beautiful i fell in love with her in that moment and dawn just like everything "Ah, i'm supposed to do and it's not working it's actually kind of like what pete does he does everything he thinks he's supposed to be doing still getting nothing from dawn dawn draper you big fat meanie Anyways, some people, uh, we have quite a few more people who are not getting what they want, but still trying. You've got Roger and Joan, and uh, that's <laughs> An- fun. Another shocker. 
Did you have any hint that there was anything going on there between no. two of them? No. Was I supposed to? I don't think so. Do I think even... there was may have been a moment somewhere along the line that I only picked up just because I already knew. Yeah, I don't even remember them talking before this episode. And then Roger's wife makes that comment about Joan and Don being a couple. Like, oh, isn't this a handsome couple? And she says, I don't go for handsome, which is like a pretty sweet bird for her secret boyfriend right there. Um, which is, yeah, it's a really hilarious thing to say in front of Roger. It's amazing. And you know, it's uh, it's that nagging kind of flirting, I guess. Well, and I think it's interesting too, like just going back to something we talked about last week when they have the like the staff meeting and, and Roger hands Joan the chair and she's the only woman at that table and, and you know, like you said, she's babysitting or, you know, mothering or, or you know, chastising Ken for not following up on the accounts and everything else. And I do believe that the bottom of my you know soul and you know my the soles of my feet and you know everything else that like Joan has achieved that position because of what she's capable of in her own natural ability gifting times and talents but then an episode later we find out that she's in this relationship with roger and it's like is roger handing her the chair because she's capable or because he's trying to placate her and he wants to keep that relationship going i just thought the the juxtaposition of one week to another and the reveal of this relationship kind of made me question some some things and actions that that roger's done that we weren't even maybe like in tune to yet till we we see this explicitly in in the show now that you mention that that actually does answer a question that i've been trying to answer for this episode which is why joan doesn't want him to leave his wife, doesn't want to have a more public relationship, doesn't even want to, like, make it seem like to him. Kind of like what Mitch does with Don with, like, oh, no, I'm just okay with this. I'm freewheeling. I have other ambitions in mind. That's not an uncommon thing for, for a lot of women in in, in the, the business world, not wanting to appear like their potential partner chip stuff is is um is what allows them you know they don't want to be seen as like affirmative action basically so they hide you know their femininity or their just general fuckability um so i i wonder now i'm like thinking is that why i mean joan kind of has given the impression that she knows this is as high as she can go as a woman and she's accepted it and she's even proud of it but I wonder if like part of it is this is her unconsciously thinking they will think less of me if I actually fall into that that plot that that I've sort of been playing with this whole time. This, you know, I'm the woman, I'm the one who's the man stealer, the one who slept her way to the top, that kind of thing. I get the sense, I think, that J- not playing Roger, but I don't think that any of this is serious for Joan. Like... I don't think that Joan loves Roger. Really? Maybe that's I'm not I generally don't remember how things play out. So I'm I'm just um just wondering. She I think if among the the major players, I think she hides her she's the best at hiding her vulnerabilities and her weak spots and the things that like throw her throw her off base even though we have moments in this episode where we've seen her like jealousy or pettiness kind of start eking out 
She hides it so well. She plays the game. She is the person she's supposed to be. So, and I just realized I had this conversation about something else. So showing that she is someone who wants someone would reveal a certain weakness. It's exposing to reveal that you may actually like someone or want someone or have some idea, ideal. The both of them expressed, you know, in their kind of sideways that they have a fear of the other person trading them for a younger mm -hmm. model. So, I mean, and if Roger's the kind of person who will like throw off his first wife for her, stands to, to reason that at some point he's going to find someone else and throw her off at some point. So then just, I guess, to follow up on that thought, when she, and again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember what she actually says, when when he's idealizing their relationship and talks about, you know, putting her in this, like, sequestered room and, again, the, making her Rapunzel, basically, or something like that. Um, and she's like, well, Roger, you know I'm going to find someone more suitable eventually, and that's this is what I want. Do you think that's her playing to kind of like counterbalancing like Roger's enthusiasm. You're, you're not, you don't think that her saying that she's going to find a more suitable, younger, younger model that she'll end up getting married with that. That's necessarily what she wants. You think that's her playing the game with Roger a bit. I just felt like it was just deflection from the conversation. Like, I don't know if maybe I'm not giving Joan enough credit, but, like, I truly don't see her as someone who aspires to meet someone, fall in love, get married, you know, live together. She, to me, seems perfectly content with the situation that she's in, and I think that's why I was so surprised to see that they were together, and that's why I just assumed that this was just another one of her games that she's playing, but obviously it's completely plausible that this is real for Joan, and, you know, she was playing up real insecurities when she was making that joke about, you know, you'll find a younger model, um... And I just may I just maybe I'm not giving Joan enough credit because I think that she's mean the way that she plays with Peggy. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. I mean, there's probably also some like self-assuredness in like I nabbed the big boss and like is doesn't need to lord it over the others even. That's why she doesn't even hint at it with the others. It's just kind of like I've finally I've made it to the top just all on my own. Um, probably the thing that kind of makes me think that it's not just all that is the presence of the caged bird mm -hmm. and how she found it to be a real mood killer. And <sighs> I mean, you know, sim the, the show has its th thing with symbolism once in a while. Yeah. And yeah, so I thought that was probably there. As, um, you know, she didn't, that's not what she wanted to be. She didn't want to be stuck in a cage, meant to be pretty and someone's companion and to sing a thing and just kind of there, not really doing what she was meant to be. Yeah, and I, and I think that whenever the show engages in symbolism, right? We had the, the horseshoe last week and the, the a literal bird in a literal gilded cage um, this week. It kind of goes back to something that I think we mentioned, or I mentioned a couple weeks ago, based on something I was reading about the the dream logic in Mad Men and and the the conscious and the subconscious being 
kind of intertwined in everything else. So I think it's, I agree that it's probably both. I think she's definitely like playing and like, that's probably the way her and Roger flirt, but maybe there is something, whether it's family of origin or, or everything else kind of deep down below the surface where like part of her wants that. I don't know. I definitely appreciated the episode kind of taking the time and giving us kind of like, I mean, it was more Roger than we've ever had before too, but like giving us a window into Joan. So like, I guess Mm -hmm. as part of like our kind of almost halfway through the season check-in, I know Joan was kind of a a tougher nut to crack when we first started recording with the, the pilot and her relationship with Peggy and everything else. But where are we at with Joan? Melissa, do you want to start as the the first time watcher? Has anything changed after this episode, or is she who you thought she was? Well, I think it'll come down to whether I can be convinced that she has real feelings for Roger, because right now Joan is still this person who just revels in playing these games and winning her personal interactions. <laughs> and that's a fun character to watch, but it's not someone I would want to be friends with. I am starting to wonder. Like, I'm fairly certain a lot of, like, my defense from Joan comes less from what we've present been presented in the show so far and rather than my own residual feelings from past watchings. My... Mm-hmm. My favor for her, I just remember just favoring her as this incredibly complex, interesting character who really strived to reach certain heights um, and is so visibly overtly sexual and has had it used against her and is trying to use it for her own um, ambition. But I think... I'm starting to think about like the difference in, in perception of her back in 2007 and, and now she's definitely striking me as the kind of person that in 2007, then that's someone that like Matt Weiner would think this is the kind of person that everyone will adore and will revere. She's sexy and she's using it and she's getting her way and she is incredibly complex, but it's, it's, um, you know, kind of like how I'm seeing Betty differently and with more sympathy. I think I'm wondering how or why or trying to look back into why I personally was so into Joan when she first um, came onto the scene. I'm still not sure how I feel about that. I'm probably going to have to unpack this for a while. <laughs> Well, I think we'll definitely have time. (laughs) What about you, Matt? Where are you with Joan? Yeah, I think that, I think your point about the 20, the 2007 lens versus the 2019 lens is, is interesting and how through that, our opinions can change and kind of maybe a bit of a, I don't want to say inverse relationship, but just kind of different relationship between Joan, who we've, we're talking about now, and Betty, we talked about before. Um, the relationship that I'm most interested in so far through six episodes um, that I think I've, I was interested in before, but more interested in now is more Joan and, and Peggy and those two kind of models or, or, or archetypes or whatnot that the, the show is kind of presenting for us. And like their relationship and their back and forth is a little more interesting to me it was always like interesting but like it's it's more interesting and I think I'm like 
slightly less interested in in Joan and Roger more, but that could just be. I don't. I don't know. I I just think that that's interesting. Um, I don't know what it could or couldn't be yet, or or why I'll have to kind of continue to reflect on that and unpack it. But I do think it is worth mentioning, and maybe we can use this to segue into you know talking about market research and 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 Peggy and everything else and what happens with her in the episode. But I was reading on the the Mad Men wiki based on a comment from the the episode commentary on the on the DVDs or the Blu-rays or whatnot that during the market research scene, Joan was intentionally she has that that very kind of like um <clears throat> tight uh red dress and it's was intentionally picked to to model a like a tube of tube is that what you call it a, a lipstick thing is that a, a tube mm-hmm. is that the appropriate name? a tube mm-hmm. a tube a tube of lipstick and how in the the market research room you have the one-way glass and it's very much fishbowl and cagey and you have the the hyper male gaze of of the uh the hitler youth at all um rating them and, and commenting on them and things like that but what what did you both think about the idea of Joan being intentionally dressed as the lipstick and then on display and then the choices she makes to, to play to her audience a little bit there? To me, Joan is, as much as she is a survivor in this like cutthroat world, in a world that's really hard to succeed for a woman, it's it's hard not to see her as just a tool of the patriarchy and of these men who are in charge and making all these decisions and objectifying all the women around them. And as much as she is able to take care of herself, you kind of see her in a, in a way just sort of shoving everyone else um, under the bus to do it. And that is hard to take. While you have um, Peggy becoming this person who who is thriving in this world, she, you've got Joan, who's just like, not necessarily treading water, but she has had to find a way that was less healthy, I guess, for her and for other women. Just a real quick comment on what you're saying about you know the different ways that Joan and Peggy are. Um, succeeding in this environment is I think that Peggy is still going back to when we're first introduced to her I think that she's still being really honest in all of her interactions and I know that that doesn't work for Don because he can't look her in the eye but it does seem to work for market research (laughs) (laughs) so that's one thing that stuck out to me in this episode and as far as Joan being intentionally dressed like a tube of lipstick they basically see all these women as just that right they Peggy hits the nail on the head when she says that she doesn't want to be one of a hundred colors in a box and she sees right through all this bullshit. That's exactly what they're doing. And they put it right there on display by actually turning Joan into a tube of lipstick because that's all these men see women as is a beautiful product, not mm-hmm. a whole person with insights and experiences, you know, to add to the conversation. 
I mean, when they're bringing them into the room, they say, do you speak moron? Throw it to the chickens. Uh, brainstorming. Don't expect more than a couple sprinkles. Like, Ooh. all of these things. And they're not just talking about the women that they're bringing in. I They're talking about Joan, too. Mm-hmm. She's on that side. She's not on the side of the glass with them. She's on the other side of the glass, dressed as a tube of lipstick, and she is playing right into their hands and performing through the glass for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and Cosgrove mentioned brings uh, he mentions in the research at some point, you know, tube lip- lipstick is basically meant to sort of simulate how a woman looks after she's had sex. It's meant to make a woman think about or make a man think about sex and draw him in on a really subconscious level. And there's that moment where Joan knows what she's doing. She bends over in front of the mirror. All the men just enjoy the crap out of it. But it's definitely meant for Roger. She is there to serve them. And they, you know, they say, I'm going to stand up and salute that one, which is meant to be a sign of respect. But it's also super gross and demeaning and something that she is probably aware is happening but that's like that was her that's her way of of getting in with them you know because i really think yeah i think that she considers herself on their side of this and she's just Mm -hmm. the one coordinating the women but they definitely see her as part of the chickens Mm-hmm. She's like almost a novelty to them. She makes me feel sad for her, but also find her really frustrating. Yeah, it's hard to watch her play into this. And it's sad to see her being played. <laughs> yeah. I kind of hate that it does set up this um, almost competition between... Joan and uh, and Peggy because Peggy does come about it so differently and you know that's probably going to come to a head later on down the road mm-hmm. and it I, I hate I feel bad for her because she is in many ways a victim even though she likes to think that of herself as someone who has overcome it and that it's going to become this like woman against woman thing right and is that because she wants Peggy to do the same things that she's doing to survive or is it because she can already see the ways in which Peggy is finding her own path forward at Sterling Cooper? I mean, it it could be more jealousy, but I mean, if Peggy succeeds in the same way that she does, it justifies her own actions. If Peggy finds a way of getting there, that means that she has probably sacrificed so much and demeaned herself in certain ways that she maybe didn't have to to succeed and that's probably an unpleasant revelation yeah because it seems like peggy is going to be able to or at least have the opportunity to maybe um you know come up in this company on merits of her writing although i don't see a world of Mad Men in which Peggy writes great copy and gets full credit for it and gets, Mm. like, a cool promotion. Like, I don't see that happening, but as it stands right at the moment, it could happen. It could happen. There's, I mean, we don't want to, I'm starting to wonder if they're setting up this, like, virgin Madonna thing going on 
because Peggy's, you know, known as the sweet, naive one. And, and Joan is the fiery redhead who sleeps around and is all about being sexy and showing off her figure. But I mean, we saw Peg- uh, we saw Peggy at the very first episode sleeping with, with uh-huh. Pete. And if that's not tarnishing someone, oh, now I feel bad. I'm not slut shaming her. It's just the fact that she slept with Pete of all people. I think just to pick off, or, yeah, just to, to stick with Peggy and kind of key off what, what you both are talking about. I, I keep, uh, or as I was listening to what, what you're both both saying, I was keying back to earlier in the season when Peggy gets tours from, from Joan initially in the pilot, and then I think it's episode two, um, might have been episode three, don't remember now, but from, from Kinsey about around the office. And that's, it, it functions both as introducing the audience to Sterling Cooper and, and, and who does what and, you know, in accounts and creative and art and everything else. And it, it's very much focused on who tells who what to do in those authoritative structures. So in this professional dichotomy that maybe that the show's starting to set up with Peggy having the opportunity to um, write more copy and Joan visualize the air quotes for only um, being the kind of mother henner or, you know, office manager type type role. Um, if Peggy writes copy, she gets to tell more people what to do and different people than, than Joan has authority of. So if there's any kind of resentment or, or jealousy, which I think is probably textual to the episode when Joan is given the task of telling Peggy that she has this opportunity and Peggy's like, Oh, Oh wow. Oh, by golly gee. Aw shucks guys. Um, I should go thank them. And Joan's like, the medium is the message. They wanted me to tell you. And the way that, um, Ishkina Hendricks does that line reading is like, you can't sit with us. And so, again, I, I don't think it's necessarily great that the show's setting up um, an antagonistic relationship between them, but I do think we're talking about levels of of power achieved or potential power or perceived power within the power systems of, of that office. I can kind of see where it's kind of coming from. Yeah, because uh, Peggy kind of comes in and even as someone who seems to be at the start of a, a rising star, being a rising star it's not the path she's supposed to be taking not as a woman not as a secretary and it's definitely not the one that joan took so of course it's going to be unnerving for joan and unnerving is probably the closest word i could give to describe yeah it's a good what word. joan is giving off in that moment when she's telling peggy because she is so still and has this most inscrutable expression on her face even though she does kind of let slip the the i know resentment or or snippiness about it uh later on but it it's a beautiful performance from christina Hendricks. 100%. just very very arresting and unnerving that peggy doesn't pick up on at all hmm. um but what do you think about uh uh everyone's reaction to Peggy um you know her honest proclamations how everyone reacted to um this quote unquote discovery that one of the secretaries actually has a good idea shocking just like all the men in this office are especially trash today 
It was a very gross room that day. Salvatore was super sassy. I really hated that line. It was like watching a dog play the piano. It was so... It was the worst. Even Don in his, like, surprised admiration. It was really condescending. He was like, huh, how about that? I don't know. It it felt like the kind of... And I mean, I think definitely with Sal, there was a lot of this, but I think even with, you know, Ken stand up salute and, you know, even Roger coming in late and like, oh, I thought I missed this, blah, blah, blah. It felt like they were trying to one up each other in their grossness, right? Like, like, so the performative element was like dialed up to 11 amongst like all of the men in regards that had relationships to market research and that whole like... I think Freddie Rumson is def- the other copywriter who we met this episode who seems to... His drinking seems to have been noticed by everyone else in that office, and I feel like that's a comment that's worth making because that office drinks a lot. So I, I suspect if your office mates are noticing how much you drink in that office, that could be an issue. Um, I mean, it's probably an issue for all of them, but but y'all know what I mean. Um, but yeah, he, he's generally believes in Peggy's comment think that that's good and they'll probably run with it but again like they kind of they preemptively take that success while still giving her a success or giving her a win right which is frustrating did Pete have popcorn when he came into the room I probably well there's definitely a bar cart I remember that I don't I don't remember with the popcorn but there's definitely the bar cart oh I was gonna say I'm pretty sure that that guy calls fucking Peggy sweetheart which no, thank you. And then one who called her mouse ears. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Leave her alone. Yeah. Leave them all alone. <laughs> the whole affair was gross. And also, don't these women know that there's a one-way mirror there? Two-way mirror? Whatever. It is funny. In, the, in, in you know, quite recently in the show, they ask, hmm, what do women want? And at some point, it's like they realized, what if we asked them? But not really. They don't really want to hear the answer, but I mean, it's well, just... and what do they ask them? They don't. They went, here's some free lipstick. We're going to watch you like a lab rat. I don't understand what they would have gained from this if Peggy wouldn't have said the basket of kisses thing. It probably would have just gone back to reading the research. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter because like, that's not the point of the show, but... <laughs> I was like, this does not seem productive. You're just counting Kleenexes and creepily watching people. I mean, that's some that does sound like something they would just do for fun. They are these <laughs> kind of gross guys. Something just pinged for me, and I, I'm curious to hear both your thoughts on it. And I think it, it's, it's kind of going off what the conversation we just had about Joan and Peggy and then I'm thinking about the rest of the the other women in the office included in market research How do I, what am I trying to say what am I trying to say I definitely feel like the show wants us invested in Peggy which okay yes you you have me again it worked but at the same but like at what it's like at what cost right at the cost of like you the other female characters in that office you're kind of i think it's more complex in the relationship with jonah's more complex but in terms of the other women there 
trying on the lipsticks and not, you know, being worried, like you say, Annie, about the, the two-way glass and paying no mind to it or, or no attention or anything else. It's like they're making it a joke and they're playing it for comedy and it's it's kind of like, oh, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too because they have this, like, character that they want us invested in who's different, who's othered, who, like, is above and are perceived to be above not not playing the game not you know chasing the the going through the maze like they expect her to but then to kind of uplift that character are they pushing down the other woman in that office i don't i think so they're not characters they're just plot devices they're just colors in a box well, unfortunately, we must leave these women and their lipsticks because as uh, the show always seems to do, we circle back to Dawn, who hmm, has a has a whole box full of lipstick there. He's super horny this episode for some reason. <laughs> but not uh, for his damn wife. I mean, he did manage to get it up for Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm so mad at him. <laughs> But he still turns her down, still jumping Rachel, or still jumping Midge about five minutes right. after trying to get off with, with Rachel at lunchtime. And just pause, because when he first calls Rachel and she's like, why is this happening? And he says, I should still be able to talk to you, and I just would like you to explain to me, sir, why you think that's true. There is certainly an entitlement to her time and attention there. What do you think that she owes you? You don't work for her. She and apparently no. Clear. And apparently no, he can't just talk to her because there he is smiling as soon as she appears. Um, you know, all flattery and compliments and holding the chair out for her and hand over hers and looking like a giddy schoolboy to talk to her. It's like, where exactly did you think this meeting was going to go? Especially after you said, like, I just want to talk to you about business. But also, I mean, I'll give Rachel half a shout out because at the beginning of this lunch, she's so no nonsense. Uh, She orders coffee. Don says Irish coffee. And she says coffee, coffee. We are not drinking. We are not friends like business. I barely wanted to talk to you in the first place. So. Well, and and it's not even like business to do with her account. It's to do with a potential other account advertising Israel, Israeli tourism and that, that cruise line. And it's like, he's like, Oh wait, I know Rachel. I know what, I know what, I know a Jewish person. I'm going to call Rachel and, and use that as my, my means to reconnect, even though she made it very clear last time we talked in the hallway accidentally when she was wearing <laughs> her, her all black, morning outfit um not morning what we don't know um i super put in my notes too that he was talking about selling israel to tourists and he immediately calls his fave jew yeah and then he and i said wrote that as a joke to myself and he says it i'm like no that's not what you're really supposed to say to a person that you're in a weird complicated non-intimate relationship with but that flirting friggin worked (sighs) Rachel, my notes say in all caps, 
Rachel, what are you doing? <laughs> the conversation that Rachel and Don have, though, about going in and, and talking about, <clears throat> well, yes, Zan, meaning, meaning Israel, and but it, like the idea of like the two versions of, of or the Greek word for, for utopia is not just the good place, but the place that cannot be and this place of this like horizon you, you, you can't achieve and this thing you want, but you can't have. And it's, it's, you, you long for it. You, you mourn for it. You're in exile. I mean, the, the title of the episode is, is Babylon. So this is definitely like the, the thesis statement conversation, right? Um, Cause during the Babylonian exile, you had the Babylonians come to what was ancient Israel at the time, pick everyone up, say, haha, you can't live here anymore and transplant them there. And, things ensue but that that idea of the the remembering and 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 the longing is so crucial i think to to kind of that time and what rachel talks about in terms of her identity both you know her her family history and her cultural history yet despite feeling more american than anything else um still having kind of that that longing and it's it's interesting because i don't I know I've said that several times. You think I'll find a better word, but I'm fascinated by it because I'm. She's talking about so many different things there, and it's it's like what's what's her place that cannot be? Is it Dawn? Probably. It definitely seems like it now. I mean, I think we've seen we we we'd seen several versions of Utopia throughout the episode, not just for Dawn or for Rachel, but. I mean, if we're talking about someone who's always constantly searching for this ideal that also just isn't real, I think Don is your poster boy for it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's whatever he has at home with Betty, it's Betty with whatever relationship she's meant to have with Don, it's Rachel with, you know, wanting this career and this whatever she's feeling with Don as well. I know it. it was really hard hitting. Well, and I think what, like just going back to what we were talking before, what Don tells Betty about mourning being like, I mean, what's the exact quote? So I get it right. Hold please. Mourning is itself pity. And then as the episode kind of closes and rivers of Babylon plays kind of to that, that montage, it's like the, we lay down and wept and wept for these ions. I representing this kind of, utopia this idea and just yeah it's just it's so on the nose perhaps but it it ties in because i don's not he's not doing that like he he's he's running he's he's seeking that ideal he's playing all these different parts but he's not what's he longing for like what's his end goal i don't even think he knows right like you you have to to lay down by the rivers and 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 weep to to mourn for something a while you have to stop and you have to mourn and if he stops he's like afraid of feeling something maybe i don't know i don't know i don't think he's afraid of feeling anything but he's definitely afraid i think of like committing to one feeling (laughs) i mean if he commits to one you, you can't ever just have you know separate all your feelings out and just have one feeling 
once you have one, once you open that gate, you feel everything. You have to face all of it. And he's got a lot he's been building up for decades. It is probably a terrifyingly huge mountain of, of personal shit to deal with there. And, I mean, he's trying to spread it out amongst all these relationships he has. Hmm. And, and none of them really seem to fix it. And he's certainly not willing to put the work into it, is he? Well, no. He does not believe in therapy. I was just going to talk about how hilariously out of place he was in that, um, in that cafe. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. The world is moving on without him. Don is very much struck on this certain idea of masculinity. And he walks in in his suit. Everyone is like hipstered out. Roy refers to him as dad. And I don't think it's in the nice way. I liked when he was like, what, you got to catch the 531? Like, yeah, I do, actually. I have a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny to go back to the Gaslight Cafe now in, in that time period because I keep waiting for uh, Susie Marison and, and Midge Maisel to walk by. But, you know. Oh, my God. I didn't even put that together. <laughs> yeah. Shout out me, bad at TV. <laughs> <laughs> You've compartmentalized all of them. Yeah, I really enjoyed all the performances too. Like just some some guy standing up there reading wedding announcements. All right, some woman who sounds like she her bit was lifted from Rent, <laughs> which is like really awful, like cringy things where you're like, this isn't real, this is all bullshit. Until you get the one friend who they all came to see, and even Don had to stop and pay attention. Um, because some things uh, can even reach beyond different, you know, cultural expectations and generations. And so, I also like that that line when Roy meets Don, and Don has this burn about how Roy probably spent more time working on his hair than Midge did. I thought that was quite clever. That that idea of of manufacturing your look, and you know, Roy pivoting very hard or, or being very hard to like. I'm an art. I'm an artist, man. I'm a revolutionary. I don't care. I'm like Harry Connick Jr.'s character from The Iron Giant, man. I'm a beatnik. It's a thing. Um, and how? Yes, he is. And he. I believe he. Roy has the strength of his own convictions, but he very much still cares about image, despite wanting and and being countercultural. I I thought that was interesting. Talk about being real. Yeah, be real, man. I did think it did allude also with to um, Don's very structured, very set, very traditional idea of what masculinity is, because his way of putting it down is not only that he spent a lot of time working on his hair, he did it more than a woman did. Yeah. Don. Don, Don, Don. Let's talk about Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Oh, Rachel. I'm confused by her choices, kind of. But for for whatever reason, like, this is not Don's fault, but the fact that this is the episode where Rachel decides that, I guess, that she is interested in pursuing something additional with Don at the same time where Don's wife is trying to pursue a deeper relationship with him, and I just have the feeling that Rachel is going to have better luck than Betty did, I just... I assume that both of these things are in this episode for it to hurt me more. (laughs) But I just, I don't 
like Rachel, you were being you were doing so good. And is what is this just to say that like anybody who is forced to spend multiple lunches with Don will fall for him? It is kind of annoying where you have this incredible woman who's at the top of her game and it's like, well, even and like really every woman will fall for like some hot piece of ass that goes by if he's persistent enough. That part's kind of annoying. Um, yeah, even one who has such daddy issues. But I mean, it's she never had that ideal Relate. She never got to see an ideal relationship with her parents. And she is lonely and she has a sister that we didn't know about who looks exactly like her in a freakish casting kind of way. <laughs> who has, you know, even though she would like some romance in her life, has the the ideal that she's supposed to have, you know, married, baby, perfect housewife outfit. So, you know, people get lonely. People want companionship and here's someone who has seen past all the weird despite his own sense of toxic masculinity don is seeing past all that and still wanting her and apparently not in spite of her ambitious ways that women aren't supposed to be but because of it it's hard not to be like not to have her head turned and not to slowly be worn down I am happy that she says the line about, you know, like, sometimes good things come, but there's no future in them. I'm happy that she does seem to have somewhat realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. Like, she knows that this is going to end a tragedy? Right. Or, like, she's not expecting, like, Don to, you know, leave his wife and kids and for them to live, like, happily ever after forever. I do hate to bring it to, like, the whole Jewish thing, because at some point, Betty, when she talks about the first boy she kissed and said, you you know, what he, uh, he was very good looking, but there was something about him that was gloomy. I hate to play into, there's that sort of stereotype of, of, um, of Jews who are very, like, cynical and, eh, we're going to get fucked over anyways. But it, it does seem like they're trying to play that up, not just... Um, in Rachel, but that this is this is the general attitude that being Jewish, just misery and tragedy and um, unhappy endings are your fate to begin with. So just go for it. Yeah, that's a really good point that I did not think about while watching this episode. I think too that humans in general, there we need to find meaning in in our in our journeys and in our suffering right and i think if you like you look at various texts and and history and things like that there like you have yeah we look for meaning in our suffering i think is is there what is and, and sometimes there's a perceived nobility in suffering. And I think that sometimes no matter who we are, um, we can put an overzealous, I think zealous is a good word, um, importance on that. And I think that that can inform our choices, which then feeds back into that whole idea of 
think it's like you tell post. It's, it starts with an E. It doesn't start with an O. Oh, oh I don't want to like necessarily try it too hard because it's going to be a Leviosa, not Leviosa um, situation. <laughs> but the idea of like, if you're longing and you're mourning for the place that that can't be or the place that was, there's like a nobility in that. There's like, you realize that maybe I want this even though it, it can't exist and can't happen, but like, I want it. But acknowledging it makes it kind of a thing and allows you to mourn what you can't have. Maybe. I think that's way maybe our insight into, into Rachel and I'm going back to that kind of subconscious conscious thing where that when they're talking about the state of Israel and her, her connection or, or lack, perceived lack of connection to it. And then revealed to her with her conversation with her sister later that that's kind of what she's keying because she because rachel's sacrificed so much right to be where where she is and to run the store and and in terms of her relationship with her her dad too in terms of trying to take it in that that different direction and it's like where's her where's her reward in that not that she's looking for you know a cookie or, or something after but like and not to go too old brand and talk about the book of Job too much, but like, what's, what's the purpose in, in the suffering? What's the kind of cosmic balance to it? Right? Like, and I think that's, I think that's the question that the episode's asking kind of in, in general, like what's, what's, what's awaiting or what's the result? What's the reward of the choices that Joan's making? Whether it's with, you know, kind of Roger, the other ones that she's like led up to the point, what's, what's there for Betty, right? And what's there for for Midge? Because we like we even see like at that, that table at the gaslight, you have her, you have Roy, you have Don, and Roy and Don are, are so different. It's like what does what does Midge actually want? I guess going back to episode two, it's like what what does Midge want? Right? Does she want a Don? Not that Don, but a Don? Does she want a Roy? Does she not know what she wants? What sh- what's what's she actually like when she's a by herself when she's away because we only ever see her generally with Don. Now we see kind of what she's like and how she code switches between between Don and Roy. But it's like what what awaits us when we suffer? What awaits us when we we're longing for that thing we can't have? We don't know what that is, so we mourn, we cry, we lay down some by the rivers and and weep, whether literally or metaphorically. It just made me, th- just made me think of that that saying about the dog that caught the car. Dogs just constantly chasing and running and so excited and you know finally does this thing that it seems like it was built for, and then it has no idea what to do with this car. It's really fucking big. He can't pick it up with his teeth. To try and end some of the melancholy a bit, like this is, I can't. I think I might have mentioned it before, but it, it's it's definitely one of my favorite episodes of the entire show. I probably haven't done that justice just because it's been so kind of melancholy talking about it. Um, but the ending montage of this episode is like a top five moment from the whole, the whole series for me. And just the way that the song plays and, and, and it's cut between even again, we get Betty again and Sally's wearing one of her dresses and <laughs> they have lipstick and kind of that, 
sharing and, and role modeling in, in that moment there because no one else is, is there. Dawn's not there. It's, it's, it's again, another mother-daughter um, interaction. And you have Roger and Joan just kind of somberly getting dressed and, and ending their, uh, their date or their, their rendezvous and then ending out on the street. And I, I've talked about this before, but, and it's not quite full tableau because they're still moving, but it, there's just that shot and they're on the street and they're just not looking at each other again. Cause they're, they're now outside of the, the hotel and the streets just kind of tilted and, uh-huh. And he, and the and then on the tilt the street you have Roger at the top and you have Joan near the bottom and all of that distance. And then the music stops, we hear the traffic sounds, and all throughout the credits goes I sat there feeling melancholy, because of course I did. Um and there's no like it doesn't go to any other music or anything else, it's just the traffic sounds throughout the whole credits, and it's just like chef's kiss emoji. It's great. Um, so Matt, you looked up that book, Exodus, that, um, Don was blazing through for quote unquote research. Could you tell us about it? That was such a big book for him to read in like a day. I'm like, wow, I know what you did in your office today instead of napping. Um, yeah. So Exodus is written by Leon Uris. I believe that's how you pronounce the, the last name. If it's, if it's not, I apologize. It was, I didn't write down the publication. Day. I think it was like four, four 57 it's definitely like mid to late 50s um and it's it was definitely a bestseller and as the episode says there's a a movie that comes out in 1960 that's directed by Otto Preminger or Preminger excuse me and stars um Paul Newman and I think Eva Marie Saint I've seen half of it I haven't seen it all um and it's it's actually one of the movies that's credited with ending the blacklist that and and Spartacus, so fun fact there. But I do think the it's interesting to note that the novel Exodus um, kind of has a unique place in the development of the modern relationship between the Israeli state and the U.S. Um, not it just it, it plays a part in kind of raising kind of cultural awareness and, and kind of I think a general affinity for North Americans, especially and Americans with um, the Israeli nation states. Um, it retells the story of a immigrant ship of the same name from 10 years prior from 1947 and traces the history of those characters through the founding of the modern state of Israel. I do want to note that the novel, which I admittedly haven't read, has been criticized, excuse me, for how it portrays the Palestinians as being pretty racist. So it's on my to read list at some point, but they're just too many books to read to go along with that because don was just having his own little book club before bed i mean a lot of it was for the sake of research uh he was trying to get into the minds of women because again didn't occur to any of them to just ask women what goes on in their minds so he's reading this one book called the best of everything by rona jaff which apparently Penguin chose to republish after this episode aired because so many people were buying old secondhand copies from bookstores and everything. Uh, and it's about several women. Uh, I found in, I believe, the Telegraph a summary. Oh, oh, The Guardian. Sorry. I found in The Guardian um, a little summary of the characters in it. Uh, the women in Best of Everything who work at a New York publishing house struggle to choose a new way of living. 
Caroline, a graduate who's determined to escape the typing pool and become an editor. <laughs> we may have seen something like that in this episode. Cannot forget the man who she, whom she, to whom she was once engaged with painful consequence. April, who has moved to the city from the Midwest, sleeps with her boyfriend only to find that she's now considered easy. Greg, an aspiring actress, turns into what we would call a stalker when she's dumped by a man whose past is too modern for her. And Barbara, a divorced single mother who spends her days wondering if there's anyone alive who will take on another man's child. These are women who fear progress and modernity, even as a part of them longs for it. The pressure to conform is simply to entrench the spectrum of spinsterdom at a time when such a status could be achieved before one had even turned 25 to shaming. It was set around in the 50s, so like not immediately before the show is set, but I thought it was kind of hilarious that we see very similar stories happening around him and Don himself, who is weirdly perceptive sometimes with what appeals to people and human nature in general does not seem to notice the women in front of him who are going through a lot of these things, even though he's, like, reading a story that presumably showcases the internal experience that they're all going through. He can lead a horse to water, or whatever. I mean, he doesn't even look at his own shit, so... I am totally, an as an aside, I had this thought when... Uh, when the kids and Betty found him at the bottom of the staircase, having fallen with all the food and stuff that he tried to make for dinner around him. Part of me just thought, did he clean that up? Or did he have Betty clean it up on fucking Mother's Day? You know Betty cleaned that up. She totally did. He totally just went, I'm sorry. And she went, oh, it's fine. And she did her thing. So despite all the melancholy, still looking forward to next week, everyone? Yes. Definitely interested to see how everything plays out with, you know, the the revelation of, of Joan and Roger, of Rachel and her, her walls slowly crumbling. Her walls of Jericho are slowly crumbling. Uh, what else? I'm excited to see Peggy, um, how far she can take this uh, copywriting thing. Oh, yeah. How is everyone going to take it, actually? Not just Joan. Well, I'm looking forward to the 1960 election, which I don't think, if we're in Mother's Day in May, I don't think it'll be for a while, but uh, they've definitely been, been talking about it. It's been in the background, so I'm I'm excited to see how the show deals with that, if and when it does deal with that. So, <laughs> and And with that optimistic look to the optimistic future <laughs> of the 60s, Melissa, where can we find more of your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. And you can find me as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast, where we will be moving into a spooky season. So, a bunch of Halloween-adjacent episodes coming over there at the time of this recording. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Pop Artery. You can also find me on the podcast, The Daily Nightly, where we talk a lot about Jane Austen and other books. 
And you can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can find all three of us together on Twitter as well at at StillGreatPod. Um, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. And tune in next time for us to discuss Episode 7, Red in the Face. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. See ya. Later days. I mean, I do do weird things for lipstick. <laughs>